Welcome to episode 186 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And I'm joined today uh, for our discussion by two guests, Mika Yoyang, uh, uh, the Vice President for National Security Programs at Third Way, and Jamil Jaffer, who's the Vice President for Strategy and Business Development at IronNet Cybersecurity, which is one of like six things that um, uh, he's doing concurrently. Um, But before we talk to them, uh, I want to start the news roundup, where um, we're going to be talking to Jim Lewis, Senior Vice President of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and Brian Egan, a Steptoe partner and former uh, National Security Council and State Department legal advisor. Uh, I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and holding the record for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. We ought to jump right in. The NDAA, this is really cybersecurity geek uh, uh, time. The NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, coming out of the Senate uh, Armed Services Committee, uh, has given heartburn to the Defense Department by including uh, what's become known as Section 1621F. Uh, and 1621F says uh, it is the policy of the United States that when a cyber attack or malicious cyber activity transit or otherwise relies on the networks or infrastructure of a third country, the United States shall, to the greatest extent practicable, notify and encourage the government of that country to take action to eliminate the threat, and if the government is unable or unwilling to take action, the United States reserves the right to act unilaterally with the consent of that government if possible, but without such consent if necessary. Uh, Secretary Mattis um, had a kind of long heartburn letter saying, I really hate this provision. Uh, can you take it out or modify it? Uh, um, Brian, um, uh, this does have a kind of State department feel, and, and so I'm guessing you're more comfortable with it than I am. Well, I don't know how comfortable you are, Stuart, but I think that this is not something that should be at the top of a list of NDAA objections Um First of all, I don't think that this requires anything per se. I think that there are some carve-outs built into the language uh, to the greatest extent practicable, if the government is unwilling or unable, if possible, language that suggests uh, something that's not absolute. Secondly, when the Congress said it's the policy of the United States, it doesn't necessarily mean that the president and the executive branch have to agree it's the policy of the United States. I think that uh, by its nature, those statements are not uh, legally binding per se. Uh, and so uh, I, I don't think that this uh, is all that objectionable. I, as a policy matter, I kind of I would assume that some of this actually reflects how the United States government would think about offensive cyber operations, anyways. So to the extent that that's true, I don't see why this would be objectionable. Okay, so there's really two issues. Uh, one, does, is this should it be the policy of the United States? And two. Uh, uh, is this lawyerable or is there enough wiggle room in it so that uh, if you don't think it should be the policy of the United States, can you get out of it? Uh, Jim, what's your thinking on this? Well, most countries fall into the category of they're unable to do anything. So you're immediately confronted with that. Second is I would have thought we could already do this under inherent right to self-defense and the 
sovereign responsibilities for actions emanating from your territory. There is U.N. agreement that this is the, an obligation that applies to all member states. So what do we get that's new? So I, 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 I agree that we can certainly say uh, if this is coming, if the North Koreans are using a hotel in your uh, um, uh, northeastern province uh, to attack us, we can come to you and say, you got to stop it. Um, a, a, not that that does much good. Uh, or if the Iranians are using uh, uh, third-party machines uh, all across the world, we can send out uh, a team of demarchers uh, to tell every country, gee, we found six DDoS machines in your um, uh, in your territory. Can you stop it? Which is sort of ineffectual in the extreme uh, and we tried it and it was ineffectual uh, uh, so we can it's certainly it's certainly the uh, we have some international law that we can point to if we say we think you need to stop this the question is I think is should we make it our policy that we will in the absence of some lawyerly hoop jumping always ask I don't see why not. I mean, the part that I like the best is that uh, North Korea has a chain of restaurants around the world, and they use them as spy bases, and the name of the restaurants is Pyongyang, and it shows up in big, big red neon letters. So it's like, hey, where's the North Korean spy base? Oh, it's over there. Okay, so we know where they are. We know we can take action against them. I think the issue is, do you want to violate some other country's sovereignty? Um to what end? And I'm not sure we get much from this. We could do this if we wanted to. The idea of imposing consequences for malicious action is a good one. It's something we needed to do for a while. But you think we should give them notice first? <clears throat> sure, why not? Well, it's uh, only uh, politeness. They, they they might say to the uh, North Koreans, "Yeah, hey, you got to change your IP addresses and your servers." They might. Uh, oh well, presumably North Korea would be on the unable or unwilling side. No, no, no. With, with, uh, it's not clear <laughs> that he's the making Chinese fun of China. China. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. Yes. Okay, so uh, uh, the other objections are a little harder to, you know, they're a little easier to address. Which they said, gee, this could apply to stuff we're doing to other people that is going through third countries, and we certainly don't want to notify them and ask them to stop the malicious activity that we're carrying out. I thought that was a pretty. Um, uh, stretched reasoning, a reading of the uh, of, of the provision, but uh, something that could easily be fixed. You guys are not worried about this. I think I just think uh, taking a demonstrably failed program of saying first we'll ask, which you know uh, was useless when Iran was ddosing us, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and just slowed everything down when in fact we could have released a worm that would have cured the uh, uh, the holes that the DDoSers were uh, exploiting, uh, that would have been direct action, yeah, would, probably would have violated this provision, uh, which is why we don't want this provision. I, I think this is more sophisticated than that. Maybe it's hopefully learning the lessons of that, which is it's not just an all or nothing ask or, or don't act. It's there are the realities of people who will not cooperate, who can't cooperate, who don't even have a person you can call within the time would be required to cooperate, all built into this. Um, so I, I don't think it's as big of a problem as some do. All right. Well, this, for this next story, I, I'm going to try out my uh, uh, my Halloween costume. So. <laughs> Uh-oh. 
so black lives is mattering and uh, we need more guns at Hillary Clinton. She's a very bad woman. Um, so uh, the question is, what is my Halloween costume? Uh, oh, I can't say it. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say it. Go ahead. It's a, a troll factory smurf. There we yes. go. Oh, that's, right. that's right. I will tell you what I, I was know. thinking. Twitter troll. Uh, that's that's what, you know. I I believe in timely costumes. Uh, uh, we've learned a lot about uh, how aggressive the Russians were. We're uh, learning more about their ads, which were strikingly kind of cheap, but. Um, I think a lot of us didn't understand how effective you could be with a small amount of money. You can you take a, a, a tweet you like and you can boost it just by paying. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you want to look popular, you uh, um, you just uh, push uh, uh, money across uh, at Facebook or Twitter, and they will make you more popular. <laughs> your stuff will end up getting read more uh, widely. Uh, and it looks like the uh, the Russians uh, were quite ecumenical in their uh, enthusiasm, uh, embracing both Black Lives Matter or Blacktivist or what have you, and uh, uh, uh anti-gun control uh, measures as well as attacks on Hillary. Uh, and that has, uh, I mean, I don't know whether you learned a lot, Jim, from that. Uh, uh, I thought it was um, an education in how much you can do with ad uh, oh. uh, technology. Gee, I didn't learn a lot. So the Russians have been doing this since at least 2010, starting even earlier against their domestic opponents. Right. The Ability to buy uh, mindshare or clicks has been part of the entertainment industry for years now, at least five years. Right? So it's like, what else is new? Uh, what's new to me is that we are so stuffy as a country, we can't make fun of the Russians back. And that's their biggest vulnerability. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, it's just like we are the establishment. Give me a break. Yeah. I thought. The, I thought that you know the thing that got under his skin most, other than the Magnitsky Act, was uh, the poster of him uh, uh, in makeup and lipstick. Uh, he's, uh, you know, apparently you go to jail if uh, if you retweet that one. Yeah, I, 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 I. But as you said, Stuart, the fact you can spend, I think, eighty thousand dollars is what the Guardian and RBC reported uh, to have an effect of the size that apparently uh, came forward was that was new to me. I don't follow this as closely as some, but that's Did, pretty astonishing. The issue that it's going to drive is what is the responsibility of these social media companies? And they have in many ways replaced the newspapers. The newspapers have fallen down a little bit. So RT and China Daily can take out full-page ads in the Times or the Post. Oh, yeah. They could never have done that in the Cold War. But the the social media companies don't even meet that standard. Their thing is, or it used to be until recently, is... We're just a platform. We're just a pipeline. We don't look at what our users put up. And so it's not our fault that you've got, you know, all sorts of maniacs roaming over uh, our landscape because we don't have any responsibility. I don't think that's a tenable position. I think it's 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 under considerable fire now, don't mm -hmm. you think? Uh, uh, and uh, I, I think we're going to see – well, it, there's the Honest Ads Act that's just come out basically saying um, – you need to disclose uh, the ads that you're uh, uh, con uh, carrying out, uh, uh, and I think you know that's that's just the beginning of what we're going to see, uh, uh, and what Twitter and Facebook and Google are going to uh, suffer a certain amount of growing pains with as they uh, as they deal with the issue. Uh, um, uh, 
All right. Well, I I, I do think uh, uh, I actually there was one issue. Uh, um, the FEC uh, actually uh, Facebook and Google asked whether they could be exempted from the requirement that they list um, the sponsor of political ads because they said there really isn't room on that silly little screen on your phone to put that uh, that language. And Google got an exemption, four to two, and Facebook did not, uh, and then just acted as though it had the exemption anyway on the theory, which I think is probably pretty good uh, realpolitik, that the, the, you know, the FEC is a six-person uh, organization so that it's easy to get, and at three Democrats, three Republicans, it's easy to um, have a, uh, uh, essentially a roadblock uh, uh, vote. Um, but because Google got uh, the exemption by a four to two vote, uh, the assumption was, well, if a three to three refusal to grant the exception, uh, is, um, is what we have, then when they try to enforce it against us, even though we haven't complied, uh, there'll be a three to three decision, uh, refusing to launch the enforcement action. Uh, and I think that's, that's likely in most cases, but that four to two vote, was three Dems and a Republican, uh, which, uh, but I think it's the Dems who are going to be most unhappy about per, uh, Facebook's performance with respect to political ads purchased by uh, um, uh, the Russians, which means that I don't think Facebook can really count on not being disciplined for acting as though they had an exemption when they do. So my new motto is just say niet, right? Yeah. <laughs> because these are, these are, we are seeing a larger reexamination of the ideas that were adopted in the 1990s when we commercialized the internet. And the theory was then, and I was part of this. Well, I, I call this the magaziner consensus. I have some good stories about that, but we'll skip them. <laughs> um, magaziner. The, Theory was you have this new fledgling industry. It, it really didn't have a commercial base when we started right. doing this. And so we didn't want to do anything like impose taxes yep. or regulations or standards for technology because it would, it would hamper innovation. It would hamper growth. That was the right decision in 1996. The question is now, whatever it is, 20, 30 years later or some in, in number in between there, is it still the right decision? I think the answer is yet. Yeah. So we're going to have to rethink all this 90s stuff. Yes. Uh, the, the magazine consensus is completely under uh, pressure everywhere uh, outside the U.S. Uh, and so we're just coming to this last. Everybody else has given up on saying we can't regulate. Another, another example of uh, American leadership. So. Yeah. From behind. From behind. <laughs> Good comeback. <laughs> okay, uh, North Korea. Oh, um, they're still robbing banks and still getting you know five or ten percent of what they're trying to get. Uh, I think they, they they went into a Taiwanese bank and got uh, five hundred thousand dollars. The rest was all returned uh, out of the sixty million they were trying to uh, steal. Uh, uh, and uh, what I was surprised with is that. Uh, 
there is somebody apparently with less spine than Sony when it comes to uh, 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 North Korean uh, hacker attacks. The BBC is not producing uh, and its uh, independent uh, uh, production company is not producing a um, uh, uh, program about North Korea that the North Koreans had objected to because there was an intrusion around the time of the Sony intrusion, and people just flipped out. Uh, um, any thoughts? I, I guess the answer is, uh, since this is all working, they're going to keep doing it. One thing that's important to note, and we saw this in the Sunday Times, we saw it in some events last week, is people keep talking about the threat of a catastrophic cyber attack from North Korea, which is roughly the same as a catastrophic cyber attack from Mars in terms of risk. The Koreans aren't crazy. The Kim family isn't crazy. They're not going to start a war. They're not going to lose. Yeah, they may have only gotten $500,000, but it's better than being blown up. Right. And so they will improve their ability to steal. They will continue to do things that are harassing actions for coercive political effect. They're not going to do a catastrophe. Give me a break. Um, Even by next, you'll be telling me EMP. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Even by mistake. Um, It appears that they are very cautious in deciding what to do. And. They look for either political effect by screwing with media mm-hmm. or for money, which is always handy, by going after banks or doing things to annoy the South Koreans. And catastrophe doesn't fall in that category. Okay. So I, 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 mean, I, I, I do worry that uh, they aren't as good as they sh- need to be about preventing cascading consequences. So it's been now... Please hold your applause. 25 years that we've been talking about cyber Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. 25 years, and there's never been one. Yeah. Right? And so there's never been a death. There's never been a casualty. There's only three instances where there was physical destruction. You know, this is not – if I was a military commander, I would be – Kim probably tied these guys to an anti-aircraft cannon for failing to get the money. But I would tie them to the anti-aircraft cannon for failing to deliver an adequate level of destruction. This is not just that powerful a weapon. Mm-hmm. Let's not exaggerate. Okay. All right. Um, is there anybody whose uh, capabilities worries you? Duh. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, okay. Well, from the sublime to the ridiculous, and this is scary, I have to say. Uh, it turns out that uh, uh, there's... Even more insecurity in sex toys than we thought. Uh, uh, it is, there's a researcher, an Italian researcher, I have to say, uh, who has been investigating teledildonics uh, and in particular the use of Bluetooth low energy. Uh, I, I, I kind of wonder if uh, the president helped him name it. Uh, Bluetooth low energy is an even less secure – actually, Bluetooth not totally insecure, but it is a relatively uh, insecure method because it is for uh, little 20 and $30 devices that you just want to hook up uh, to your phone um, and easily um, man-in-the-middled. Uh, and so what this fellow – demonstrated is that he could uh, take over anybody's sex toy and then start um, modifying its performance in action. Uh, I thought the more troubling one was a a separate report that said 
these devices, like all Bluetooth devices, announce themselves, saying, anybody want to pair with me? Which, of course, is highly appropriate in this industry. Um, and uh, uh, which means that you can do what they used to describe as war driving. Uh, you know, you war- drive around the neighborhood looking for Wi-Fi and uh, finding out what uh, uh, who's got Wi-Fi and whether it's open or closed. Uh, um, you can drive around your neighborhood, uh, and I did not come up with this pun, uh, uh, engaging in what somebody described as screw driving, looking for all of the sex toys, the Bluetooth, ener- low energy enabled sex toys in the neighborhood. You're going to cut this part from there. I no, I, I, you know, I. I I can see from your yeah, body language. Yeah, they're holding up the sign over. <laughs> yeah, they are. It's over true. Over and out. It's, a, it's true. What's the, what can I End say? of transmission. Is tall in me. <laughs> Wear the hat. Literally. Okay. Um, one more on Internet of Things uh, security. Medical professionals are responding to the latest news, which is that you can uh, – your your implanted uh, heart pacemaker can be modified to kill you uh, and that there's an upgrade that makes it harder for hackers to break in by saying, mm, yeah, no, I'm not going to make my patients come in and get an over-the-air upgrade uh, because it must be a one-in-a-billion chance that somebody's going to attack them. So, uh, and there's at least a possibility that, that the... Um, upgrade will cause the machine to stop for a second or go back to its default setting. So I'm not going to put my patients through that. Uh, uh, I'm just not even going to tell them that they should come in or that there's a problem. Um, I'm the doctor. I get to decide. I decide no. I, I, I'm just kind of astonished. This is a good one for a lawyer broadcast because I think another 90s idea that will soon be going the way of all things is the fact that you don't have liability for IT products and software. And it won't take very much to drive people to decide that uh, there should be liability. So, you know, this is common law. In an ideal world, regulation will get ahead of it. What will probably happen is that there will be a few incidents and you'll see some lawsuits and manufacturers will have a come-to-Jesus moment. Yeah, although I think these guys may be protected by the FDA. If the FDA hasn't told them to do it, uh, it's not clear that it's negligence for them not to do it. That would be an interesting question. I just don't know the answer, whether you can bring a claim saying uh, you should have done this and whether the re- response, the FDA looked at this and didn't tell us to do it, is uh, is sufficient. But it's probably pretty powerful. Uh, uh, and the FDA has um, been pretty slow off the mark in these cases. So the two issues that boards worry about now, we did a survey a few months ago. They worry about liability, which right. is what we're talking about. But they also worry about brand. They don't care about the cost right, right. when it comes to cyber incidents. And so you're a, you make a device, and your device is now known as the one that actually just killed a couple of people. Um, from now on, are you going to be able to sell that device? Yeah, as long as there's choice in the market. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, it's not just it's not just the the, the manufacturer has the problem that the doctors have to expect that they're going to get sued too. So Mm -hmm. they're going to be quick to abandon anything that could make them a co-defendant. I think you're right. Uh, uh, Well, interesting. Last last topic I promised uh, uh, to cover this. Uh, The EU has released its first privacy shield report, and we pass. We're adequate. (laughs) 
Yeah, that's the bottom line from uh, last week. They say the U.S. authorities have the relevant procedures in place to ensure the functioning of the privacy shield, which itself is deemed to be adequate by the European Commission. So not that this is the end of the day on the legal discussions and the lawsuits ongoing about the adequacy of U.S. protections, but uh, this marker has been put down. The review took place during the Trump administration, mm-hmm. so this is not something from the last administration, which is interesting. They came out with a number of recommendations, some of which have to do with things we've talked about in this program, 702, PPD 28, etc. cetera. Uh, but the bottom line is uh, still good from the European Commission's perspective. I think the EU was reading in both administrations. They thought that if they threatened to say mean things about the last administration on privacy, the last administration would uh, cower a little. And they weren't convinced that that was going to be true of this administration. Uh, and so rather than rather than uh, test it, they just said, oh, yeah, yeah, you're fine. You're completely adequate. I think uh, this shows that this administration is actually taking this more seriously than they've taken a lot of the other prior administration's I, I agree with you procedures. On that. I, I, I do agree with that uh, uh, on that because I think uh, uh, the Commerce Department has stepped up and made it a, a priority to get a good report. Uh, and so they, they have worked on it, but they haven't made any concessions. Okay, um, let's uh, turn to our interview. Uh, it's with uh, Mika Yoyang and uh, Jamil Jaffer. Uh, Mika is, as I said, Vice President for the National Security Program at Third Way and a Hipsy staffer, a House uh, uh, Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence staffer. Uh, uh, when the... Uh, Precursor of, the, of 702, the functional equivalent of 702, but uh, without uh, any statutory authorization, was disclosed, and uh, uh, Mika was part of the process of putting it on a statutory basis. So, welcome, Mika. Thank you, Stuart. And uh, Jamil Jaffer is Vice President uh, uh, for Strategy and Business Development and Ironet Cybersecurity, adjunct professor uh, at George Mason University, recently departed uh, uh, Supreme Court clerk to uh, Justice Gorsuch. Uh, uh, and uh, there's at least one thing I've left out, right, uh, uh, Founder of the National Security Institute at George Mason. There we go. Uh, and uh, uh, there uh, is carrying on uh, basically – um, work that Rachel Brand was supposed to have done, but she left to join the, some department somewhere. No? That's what I've heard. Yes. Okay. Um, so what we wanted to talk about today is the background of 702 to kind of uh, this. This should have been done first, but we we did one uh, program earlier to kind of say where'd the program come from, uh, how does it work, does it work, and then to look a little bit at what. Uh, is being considered for changes of the program. Uh, uh, so why don't I start uh, by just uh, asking Mika to give us like the two-minute version of the history, of the, an overview of the history of the program. Yeah, so um, going back really far um, to the Church Commission, actually, Okay. there were two programs at the NSA revealed by the Church Commission. One was a bulk collection program where the government was getting massive amounts of uh, data, all the telegrams that were transiting the United States. It was one of the two programs they revealed, and there was tremendous outcry about that. The other one was that they had been collecting against specific Americans, including people like Martin Luther King Jr. Um, when they when they were outside the United States, right? 
I don't actually know. I think I, it was more than that because I, given the my, my memory the, is that it was it was people who were traveling abroad and calling back or calling to you know their buds in North Vietnam. Stuart, I will have to trust your living memory on that since it was before my time. <laughs> one, one, of the, one of the great uh, values of, uh, of, of achieving this age is that people will believe almost anything I say about the 20th century on the assumption I was there. Uh, but I was not there for that. But th- there, there has been some allegation that they were collecting on certain people through the FBI. Anyway, the, there was tremendous outcry about this, and people were very concerned that the government was collecting large amounts of data on people who were had we're doing nothing wrong. And it, there wasn't a particular, that sort of amount of collection wasn't um, focused enough. And also, that gave us FISA, right? And then, then that gave us FISA in 1976. And what the FISA, original FISA law did is it put the companies in the middle. Because at that time, the original program, the companies was, were voluntarily turning over these tapes to the government. And so what the original FISA did is put the companies in the middle and said, if you give information to the government without a warrant, without a permission slip issued by a judge showing probable cause, now you have some liability, right? Someone can sue you and say, hey, you violated the Constitution and, and now there's a problem. And so what that the original FISA did was put the companies in the middle as the gatekeeper between the individual data and the government who is trying to seek it, because obviously the government finds this information very valuable. That was a state of law for a very long time. Fast forward to, including through the, sorry, the 90s, as Jim has talked about, the sort of hands-off view about technology. Fast forward to 9-11, and the national security imperatives in the country changed dramatically. We had people who were willing to commit catastrophic attacks against the United States, and we didn't know who they were and where they were coming from. And at the same time, technology had evolved to the point where you had the ability from the government to collect a huge amount of information on people, um, bulk collection, and then also processing it improved to the point where you might be able to actually process that information usefully to find out what you were looking for, so the government argued, differently than what we had in 1976 in the original FISA where there were tapes and no one could listen to them because it was just too much manpower to go through it. Um, so after 9-11, the Bush administration began a very secret program to gather information from uh, technology and telecommunications companies. Um, and went to them in secret and said, as part of this national security imperative, you need to give us this information. That program was initially authorized by the Department of Justice, but did not go through a court approval process. Later, this, uh, when reviewed by some more thoughtful lawyers at the Department of Justice, um, in the Bush administration, they felt like that that program was not actually on sound legal footing. They tried to then switch the legal authorization from the Department of Justice to the White House Counsel's Office, leading to the very famous incident at the hospital mm-hmm. with uh, Attorney General Ashcroft, where um, then Deputy Attorney General Comey sort of first came to light as the person who said no. Um, and then there was some um, needing to seek court approval of this. And the court, the FISA courts were looking at this in secret and were uncomfortable with the program. Um, at the same time in 2006, the existence of the program was revealed, of, of this bulk collection program, was revealed by Eric Licklau in the New York Times, which caused tremendous public outcry. After the 2006 elections, when Congress and the House flipped uh, party control, you had a Democratic Congress much more interested in conducting aggressive oversight of the pre- of the Bush administration and understanding what that program was. At the same time, 
the committee was very concerned about not preventing the government from doing its national security job, and these programs were largely designed to focus on foreign targets overseas, but there was some use by domestic law enforcement to identify those places where those foreign threats were transiting and could pose a threat here in the United States. Um, the committee was also very concerned about the potential liability for those communications companies that and technology companies that had participated in the program and were exposed to liability under the original fine. Well, there was a host of lawsuits. And there was a host of lawsuits that could have, because of the amount of data we're talking about, liability could have been in the billions. Right. And so that was the main fight with the company. Oh, at the original legislation was, do we indemnify the companies for participating in what they thought was good faith Meaning or not? Even in, in 2006, the assumption was, of course, this program should continue. It needs to have a statutory basis, and we need to deal with the consequences of the leak in terms of the litigation. Yeah, and there was also some sense of, like, this, this what we're doing right now is too big. We need to have some kind of court approval in this. We need to figure out how to draw some lines so that the government can continue to focus on those threats that they need to focus on, but we're not talking about everything. And the government came in and argued at that time that it was just too much work to se- to seek individualized warrants on those foreign targets, right? right? Like there how many hundreds and thousands of people and the KGB and the PLA do you want to be collecting on and we're not going to seek warrants. And the statute doesn't people. doesn't require. And the statute doesn't require that. The government in the statute says, "Hey, there are all these people or selectors that we want to collect on." The courts look at that and say, okay, government is sufficient, and then they, the courts issue an order. The government then takes the order to technology companies and telecommunications companies and say, I want the information on these particular selectors. The companies give them over. They can change the selectors, can't they? And the government can change the selectors um, as So this as really can. amounts to going to court and saying, um, I have a program of interception. That's uh, right. Here's how I'm going to run it. I'm not going to tell you which people I'm looking for, which names I'm using, which selectors, email addresses, phone numbers, whatever. Uh, I am simply going to tell you, here's how the program works. Right. Approve it or not. Uh, and uh, uh, it, it's pretty hard not to approve it, I think, at that point. Uh, right. uh, and that's that's what the statute says uh, in 2007, right? Is that in the 2008. Protect- there was an oh. earlier version of the statute that was largely the same structure with some technical differences. That wasn't sufficient. They, Congress had to come back and do it again um, and sort of correct and this is the one. Things. The 2008 bill is the one that famously Barack Obama, who seemed very skeptical about all these programs, flipped and said, no, you should, you should uh, pass this law in whatever it was, June or July of 2008, after he'd more or less clinched the nomination. That's correct. Barack Obama voted for this piece of legislation. Hillary Clinton voted against this piece of legislation. Um, one of the challenges, though, that the committee did not, the intelligence committees, which were the main driver of the legislation, didn't really wrestle with is, what does it mean to have this very powerful intelligence tool that is largely aimed at making sure that NSA can identify foreign targets what does that mean when the FBI that's engaging in domestic law enforcement is able to go through that same giant pool of data, very valuable, asserted for foreign intelligence, terrorism, or WMD reasons, and look through it for cases that they're building here on American soil? And we've never really tested the constitutional sufficiency of the structure in a law enforcement case. So this this is an issue that has been present in the program from the beginning. Yes. Start uh, And by 2008 was 
clear enough and, and statutorily authorized, or at least there was no statement to the to the contrary. Reauthorized in 2012. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, um, no changes. Really, not not a, a serious, uh, not a, a very difficult debate. Then we get Snowden, uh, and now we're back for another renewal uh, in 17. Um, and the big issue, or one of the big issues, as you say, mm-hmm. is uh, when does the FBI get to look at data that was collected? under this program uh, when it isn't clearly looking for a national security purpose. Yeah, I think that's right. And look, I will admit some fault on this. As the committee staff, we were really focused on the NSA's authorities and what it means for the intelligence community to look for these threats and identify them and deal with them overseas. We didn't think very carefully about the Fourth Amendment concerns here. And frankly, it wasn't really our expertise. And that should have been judiciary. And they, you know, a little bit of inside congressional baseball, the committees don't play that nice together. And so we weren't that great about letting them into the tent to talk about what these concerns were. Well, of course, uh, uh, I guess at various times, uh, uh, Jim Sensenbrenner has been chairman uh, uh, of the Judiciary Committee, uh, and he used to say, don't give me those classified briefings. It'll 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 make me vote for you and I don't want to. Uh, and so he just wouldn't take the briefings, and then he'd claim that nobody told him about the program, uh, which right. is, you know, I guess true enough. Uh, um, so, Jamil. What's your perspective on this history, and do you think that the the issue now is the Fourth Amendment and the FBI? I mean, I think the I think the recount of the history is is fairly accurate. Although I would quibble with some of the details um, when we came to the point of actually getting the 702 program uh, created in 2008. Um, in my recollection, at least at, being at the Justice Department at the time when we were actually helping write this legislation, um, is that in fact the committees were extremely engaged in the question of how the authorities might be used um, uh, both for foreign intelligence purposes as well as uh, how the information might be shared with other agencies inside the government. In fact, we had spent the better part of, at that point, almost seven years helping tear down the wall between intelligence and law enforcement with the help of the committees, with the help of the Judiciary Committee, with the help of the Intelligence Committee. Um, In fact, we were under tremendous pressure from the Intelligence Committee to continue to reduce that wall at that very time, uh, in part because the 9-11 Commission and then the follow-on to that, the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act um, and the commission, the WMD Commission that looked at that issue, uh, told us to tear down the wall between intelligence, foreign intelligence collection, and domestic law enforcement mm-hmm. because that critical nexus, because of what happened on 9-11, because there was an FBI criminal investigation of the USS Cole bombing and a CIA counterintelligence counterterrorism investigation on the, the meeting in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, and the connections weren't drawn, and in part because of myths arising out of this wall that was created. And now it's funny because, you know, nobody debated this issue after, you know, five years of having this authority in place in 2004 years, in 2011, 2012, when we reauthorized this. Nobody debated this issue. It had been in play for four years. And the reason why it's coming up today, I think, is because we're in a post-known environment. People feel like, we're, we're a, you know, a decade and a half away from 9-11. It's easy to forget the lessons of 9-11, which was we've got to tear down those barriers. And we're in the process, if you look at the House Judiciary Committee bill, it is in the process of re-erecting that very wall that the 9-11 Commission condemned that the first FISA court review said wasn't even actually legally required um, and that we spent the better part of almost a decade 
taking down. And so I think it's very dangerous to re-erect that wall. I would just say, to Jamil's point on that, I think one of the other things that's really changed in the period since 9-11 and then after Snowden is people's understanding of just how ubiquitous technology is in their lives and how much it means to have the government have access to these tools. I think Snowden revealed just how ubiquitous it could be. And I think that makes people very nervous. And you see courts starting to wrestle with these questions um, in a very different way. Yeah, that's another way of saying it's a long way back to 9-11, and Snowden is uh, closer in people's memories. That's right. A lot of people think that this program was somehow not legal and hadn't been reviewed by Congress when Snowden revealed it. And, in fact, we'd spent many, many years, as Jamil said, trying to make this program a functional program. This was an enormous public debate uh, that uh, um, the – candidate for president for uh, uh, the Democratic Party was at the heart of and whose uh, decision to uh, support it in the end uh, probably uh, delivered the legislation. Yeah. So it's it's hard to hard to say it wasn't debated. What wasn't debated was the meaning of two fifteen and whether you could collect everybody's metadata on the ground of likely relevance uh, uh, to an investigation. That was a different question, and that was one that has led to changes in the program uh, uh, and in the law. But this one was debated, uh, but people forget. Well, and worth noting that you know President Obama never proposed limiting. Uh, the authority of the FBI to look at this data, um, even when it was up for renewal during his administration, uh, even though he had expressed concerns about the authority itself. And so it's notable that at no point during the Obama administration uh, was there a decision to not share information with the FBI um, as a matter of law or seek that type of legislation from Congress. Yeah. Um, so I, I kind of want to go back to the question of the Fourth Amendment, because uh, I wonder whether there's really a real Fourth Amendment issue here or just uh, a kind of what I've called a paper mache uh, Fourth Amendment. It's a it's a it's a it looks like the Fourth Amendment it sounds like the Fourth Amendment. So, well, let's call it the Fourth Amendment. But in fact, courts have looked at this. I, I, are there any courts that have said that uh, uh, FBI searches of this database violate the Fourth Amendment? So this is one of the things I think is really um, needs to be dealt with in in this renewal of the debate, right? The government asserts that it's revealing 702 information to defendants, which is where such challenges would arise. But you've actually had very few disclosures of the use of 702 in court cases. Well, Those- wait, wait. The, the, the FISA court reveal, reviews the program every year uh, when the AG comes in and says, this is how our program is going to work. And the I, I'm willing to bet the court gets to ask, uh, does this mean the FBI gets to read the, this stuff later uh, in uh, in conducting criminal searches? And if they think it's a violation of the Fourth Amendment, they can say, well, you can't do that. That's a in, violation of the Fourth Amendment. In fact, Amendment. the statute requires the court to look at whether the, the proposal by the government is consistent with the Fourth Amendment. Right. The court is actually explicitly required by the law, by the 702 law, to do that analysis. And what it does is it looks at the very rules under which – the government proposes the FBI gets access to the data. Well, yeah, but Stuart, I think there's a huge difference between the, the FISA court looking at the program in the abstract, which is a non-adversarial process until recently where they have some amici appointed, um, who may or may not be taking this role aggressively, and the as-applied challenge of a defendant who is facing incarceration and the use in that case, right? It's a, it is a different circumstance that I think non-FISA judges would look differently. And more importantly, I think that it's a real challenge that the government, the government's assertion of the value of 702 and how important it is, which I don't dispute, 
But the number of times that the government says, like, this is a really valuable tool that we can't afford to lose, which I agree with, and the small number of cases in which 702 is disclosed to the defendant, those two things don't add up. Well, unless you think that they're mostly using it for intelligence purposes, not to put people in jail. Which is exactly the kind of program it is. So I, I, I find the notion that an Article Three judge, just like, in fact, just chosen, pulled off of the bench to review this, uh, is going to be more likely to defer to the government when it, the ruling would be entirely prospective and uh, it can be adjusted to, that they're more likely to say, oh, I can't do that, than a judge faced with the prospect that they will make a retroactive determination that a program is unconstitutional with unknown consequences, but for one, which is that some criminal in front of him who's otherwise going to jail gets to go free. I, I The idea that that's a better way to decide this issue strikes me as odd, and in any event, uh, it, it hasn't happened, uh, and um, it, it's bizarre for Congress to say, well, okay, maybe it isn't unconstitutional, but we have our ideas about what ought to be done here. We think a warrant is required for this research of the data, um, a, and we're going to impose it and make it look as though it has a Fourth Amendment uh, uh, origin when it's really just made up by, you know, the ACLU. But Stuart, the entire history of the Fourth Amendment is as applied challenges about particular technology and courts weigh in all the time, right? Like this is why we have the rules about, right, infrared cameras. It's why we have the rules about cell site location, right? The courts have been deciding these things on as applied as opposed to but you don't making like, programmatic you don't like it oversight. But you don't some judges decide that in the abstract, in advance, uh, uh, and they come out a way you don't like. So right? I think one of the challenges on that, on the programmatic evaluation, is that you don't actually know how it's applied. And these are very technical programs, right? There are p- periods at which the FISA court judges have had the program described to them and have them have had those programs have been inaccurately described as regards to the technology. So I think that there are places what, where what, the what as is, applied- What is hard about saying we're going to give this data to the FBI and they can search it? That, that you know, it, it, I don't think they said they can't they can, they can't search it. They actually may not have said we're giving all the data because they're not. Uh, uh, but uh, it's hard to see what kind of as-applied uh, issue there would be about taking data you already have and running somebody's name through it. So I think that this goes to this fundamental question about whether or not any information lawfully obtained by the government for any purpose is available to other parts of the government for other purposes. Right? Well, that, 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 is, think- that is exactly the issue. This is exactly the question we fought about. Pre-9-11, right? There exactly. was literally a discussion between FBI agents who were yeah. doing a law enforcement case and intelligence agents doing an intelligence case saying, we can't give you that information because we have to, we have to throw it over the wall. Or, and literally an email said, people will die because we haven't solved this information sharing problem. And what now is being argued for is let's rebuild that wall. Let's re-erect it. Let's ensure that we create a barrier between intelligence investigations on one hand and law enforcement investigations on the other hand. Now, I thought we had solved that problem after 9-11 and realized that was hugely catastrophic for our country. It appears we have not. It appears we've forgotten that lesson from 9-11. I think we do that at our peril. And look, at the end of the day, the question is this. You have a file drawer that you went and got information in that's lawfully yours, right? Mm-hmm. You would tell the FBI to ignore that drawer when, when, when trying to find out information about a potential criminal or potential activity, just pretend like you never got that drawer. 
or even worse under the House bill. That's not an accurate even worse even worse under the House bill. Even worse under the House bill. You can look in the drawer to see if you have a file folder with that guy's name on it, but you can't look inside the folder if you do find a folder with his name on it. I mean, completely bizarre. Things like, you imagine the Las Vegas shooting happens, right? And you need to move quickly. And you want to figure out, do we have 702 information on that shooter? Now, it turns out he was not a... Apparently not. Apparently not. But but you want to find out very quickly. You would have the FBI take the fact of an active shooter, go to a federal judge, ask for a warrant before they can look in their own file cabinet in their own office of information they had lawfully collected. That literally is what the Nile Commission said we don't want to do. It's literally we spent a decade trying to tear down. So let, let me ask me, Kit. Um, mm-hmm. You said that this is about whether the FBI can dig into data it's already lawfully uh, collected. Uh, um, and we've got this one example. Can can they search for Stephen Paddock's name within 12 hours of the attack? Right. Uh, uh, so... I, First, my question is, is there any, are there any circumstances where the FBI is not currently allowed to look at data that has been lawfully collected? So I think that this isn't a question of like, is the FBI, does the FBI have to ignore the data or not? And not look at it at all, or so it's more about what is the process the government has to go through in order to look at the content of this information. Now, the House proposal is that they can go, as Jamil says, look in the file folder and see that they got a name on this guy. And frankly, given the metadata search it's possible, you could gather a tremendous amount of information on a particular person um, before you even started looking at the content of their emails. And then you go to a judge and you say, hey, I want to look at the content. I've got Right, I, whatever. However, they wind up setting the standard on this and say, except I want to look at this. Except you can't use results of the very metadata search you just said would give you a lot of information. You can't use that as a predicate what? for the warrant. Well, that is well, the Well, in the wacky. case of the Las Vegas shooter, you already have it. I mean, you have enough. You, there's clearly enough sufficiency there. Right? The problem well, I, I, is well, in, let me understand that maybe I, I don't fully understand how the House bill would work. Uh, is it only enough to say we have evidence that this person committed a crime and therefore we're looking for his name? So this is an excellent question because I think the House bill also draws distinctions between the kinds of crimes at issue, right? So there are some uh, broader latitude when we're talking about certain kinds, like the National Security Division and the things that they're looking at is a, is differently situated than ordinary crimes. Actually, I'd have to go back and look, though, because I know that this has been in negotiation in the House for a while, and they've been wrestling with this question of what is the appropriate permission slip, what what does the FBI have to do before looking through the data? Now, I don't think that we're talking about re-erecting the wall here, but I think that we are saying, hey, there's a turnstile and you're going to have to like get a permission slip to go through it for some circumstances. Because people are concerned that these very, very powerful intelligence gathering tools can be used against Americans. And the powers of the NSA are really impressive. But that's just not true. These tools are not being used against Americans. Let's not, let's not mislead our audience, right? The law prohibits explicitly on its face the targeting of any Americans under its, under its provisions. In fact, it actually expands protections for Americans both in the United States and overseas and actually also prohibits the targeting of a foreigner located overseas to, in order to surveil an American. So the notion somehow so, so that Americans are being targeted for surveillance in this law or Americans are being swept up. And by the way, it's worth noting the NSA has now declassified the fact that it's just over 100,000 people under coverage under this authority. Right. That's out of 350 million people in the United States alone. By the way, no Americans are covered. Right. 350 million Americans, 
7.3 billion people in the world, and the NSA is covering 100,000, and we're concerned that Americans' context information is being swept up by this huge collection? I mean, it's so, laughable. So I let think me it's overstating what the concern is. I mean, I think that there are plenty of Americans who are in contact with foreign overseas. And, right, and foreign intelligence targets? There's certainly a number of Americans calling foreign intelligence targets. I mean, the number of journalists alone who are calling foreign intelligence targets, like that we want to know what, you know, that could be incidentally collected. Members of Congress who are having conversations. Your concern is the FBI using it to find garden variety crime. So your concern is about the American journalist calling a foreign intelligence target overseas who's under coverage. This one of the 100,000 people, right? Less than the number of bureaucrats in all of Russia or China by a huge minority of that. And you're worried that that person might be their communication might be caught, and in that communication might be evidence of a domestic crime that the FBI might come across if they do a search of this database. I mean, the 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 and by the way, in order to do that, you'd have the FBI go to a federal judge for the Stephen Paddock warrant while he's actively killing people in Las Vegas. I mean, are we kidding ourselves? This well, is I literally mean, okay, the opposite. A, a, this is a, literally the Stephen opposite. Paddock is an American citizen on U.S. soil. So the idea no, that the warrant wa- requirement, and he has no foreign intelligence con- connection. No, so the no, idea that, that was no, the question. No, that's, exactly, that's, yeah. that's exactly my point. That's exactly my point. We didn't know when he was out shooting people from that balcony. You didn't know we his didn't name, know, so how are you going to go know, get anything on him? No, you don't have any selectors on him. I mean, sort of a ridiculous on, example. In, no, no. In the, in the immediate aftermath of that shooting, right, we knew his name because we knew the room he had. We knew who had checked, who had rented that room. Right? The FBI would have had to take that name, go to a federal, to figure out whether he has connections to Al Qaeda, whether this was a terrorist attack, and whether there might be follow-on attacks or other of his compatriots anywhere in the world, anywhere in the U.S. They would have to go to a federal judge and say, "Hey, we need a warrant." Instead of to look in their own file cabinet, that's what you would have them no, do. You have I think them rearrange. This- what they're talking about doing is that they could they can pulse the database for the name. You see what kinds of connections he has, and then before you're going to go read through everything in the content, given the time is not urgent at that point. I mean, like, emergency. The time is not urgent. You're, he might have accomplices. Battle accomplices all around the country ready to take out, take on that exact. This is literally the 9-11 problem. You, your sense of what urgency is, is not the sense of urgency American people have about national security. Right? And this is exactly the thing that the, that the FBI pointed to and the 9-11 Commission pointed to and said, look, we didn't take it seriously. We were investigating the coal bombing over here. We had this guy, Khalad. Then we had another group of guys over here in Malaysia. The fact that, and they had weeks and months. And they didn't share that data. They didn't, they didn't have the time. They didn't have the wherewithal to do whatever was, to, what it needed to happen and it didn't get shared. Now, nobody's saying that would have led to the, led to finding the 9-11 hijackers. Not even the commission said that, but the commission said tear down that wall and, but it almost certainly would have. I, I looked at this closely. And, and yet here we are. There were three weeks, uh, he, he could have been found by the coal I mean, uh, team. It, it's amazing. If you go to the 9-11, uh, Memorial Museum in New York and you look at the San Diego phone book they have there, Nawaf al-Hazmi's name is in the San Diego phone book. Yeah. We knew Nawaf Hazmi was at an Al-Qaeda meeting in Kuala Lumpur, but the intelligence agents couldn't tell the FBI because they were afraid of that wall. They, they and we would re-erect it here today. They, they knew he was in the country. Uh, and, and nobody went to find him because the but, FBI's intelligence I mean, before we, bl- before we blame the 9-11 attacks on a lack of – right. Cooperation between the FBI and the CIA. The 9-11 Commission blamed it on a lack of cooperation between no, the, the FBI and No, they said tear down the wall. But look, before you say that this, but for this program, we wouldn't have had the 9-11 attacks. Remember when we got to the underwear bomber, wait, we had people walking in overseas. This was after that period and they still didn't share the information. So this is not a panacea for stopping terrorist attacks against the United States. It's an important tool. 
I, you know, I think we're in agreement that this is a very important tool, but I think that there's tremendous unease when we're talking about the incidentally collected Americans and what happens to their information. Now, Congress will ultimately decide whether or not they think that additional protections against on the or additional bureaucratic uh, process is necessary for the FBI. But I think there are a lot of people who are tremendously uneasy, given incidental collection, given the tools of the NSA, that the FBI can use an intelligence database with the awesome powers that the American intelligence agencies have to look at, right, the FBI is going to be looking at the incidentally collected American end. And we have a constitution, and I think there's a lot of discomfort with that. Here's, with the, the, yeah, here's my concern, right? We were told after 9-11 to connect the dots, right, find those terrorists. And you're right, the, the, shoe, the, the, uh, the underwear bomber, terrible example of not sharing information. But the idea that we should put in more information sharing restrictions after we've been told to connect the dots seems crazy. It's like taking the dots and put it in the closet and lock them up until you go to a federal judge to unlock that, unlock that, that closet of dots. I guess if that's where we want to be as a nation, look, that's fine. But, but we were told connect the dots. This authority helps identify the dots. If you can't let the FBI connect them, it's hard to explain how they're going to stop a terrorist attack. Mika, you get the last word. Look, I think ultimately this is going to be a question that Congress is going to have to wrestle with and people are going to have to decide given all of these concerns, given the, suspicion and concern that people have about the executive using intelligence tools against Americans, whether or not they want to put additional tools in or not. And I think that Jamil's point about we are in a very different place than we were in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 is true. And I think actually at this moment, people fear their own government a lot more than they fear threats from overseas, which seem abstract to them. Okay. I think that actually does sum up where we are. Right. Um, so thanks to Jamil Jaffer, thanks to Mika Yoyung, uh, thanks to Jim Lewis, uh, uh, who threatened but didn't jump in, uh, and to, to Brian Egan, uh, who also didn't. Uh, maybe that's testament to uh, the fact that uh, we didn't actually leave a quarter second of dead air uh, during that discussion. <laughs> this has been episode 186 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Don't forget, if you have a guest interviewee to suggest, uh, uh, send that suggestion to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. And if they come on the program, we will give you one of our coveted uh, Cyberlaw podcast coffee mugs, which we'll be giving away today. Uh, and uh, if you want a picture of me uh, uh, dressed as Russian Twitter troll uh, in place of the mug, uh, it's cheaper. We'll be glad to send that to you. Uh, uh, coming up, we're going to be joined by Mug Solmeyer of the Belfer Center's uh, Cybersecurity Project, by Chris Painter, the former State Department cyber diplomat, among others. Uh, mark your calendars also for November 7 when we'll be doing election security on election day here uh, live in person and in front of a live audience uh, at our DuPont Circle office. Uh, just go to the Steptoe.com website uh, and sign up on the events page. Uh, and we hope to see you there uh, as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 